Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on May 1st of 2020 under the headline, Quest for Cabin Gold Vault Led to Madness and Death. It's part two of a two-part column. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you might check that out. It may not make as much sense if you just start here. Here we go. By 1899, when Samuel L. Simpson's drinking problem finally got around to killing him, he was essentially Oregon's poet laureate, the Stuart Holbrook of the 1800s. But 30 years earlier, he was just another fresh-faced lawyer just out of Willamette University's law school. He'd moved to Portland to open his practice, and now he was sitting at his desk in his brand-new office in Portland, sipping a glass of rye and waiting for the first client to walk in the door. No one did. There were just too many lawyers in Portland in 1868. Fresh out of law school, with no social connections, Sam just didn't have a chance. But finally the door did open, and somebody stepped inside. It wasn't a client, though. It was one of the other residents in the boarding house he was staying in, a greenhorn from Chicago named Ted Harper. And Harper had a proposition. He wanted Sam to close up his law office and come to southern Oregon with him. They would spend the summer hunting for a certain ruined cabin with an immense hoard of gold buried inside, deep in the wilderness south of Jacksonville, in a hidden valley boxed in by steep cliffs. Only problem was Harper didn't know exactly where that valley was. It was possible that they'd search all summer and get nothing for their pains. But Harper did have a letter giving partial directions to the cabin, which his cousin, who built the cabin and buried the gold, dropped dead in the middle of writing. Simpson agreed to the scheme. He was brand new in the law business, had no clients and very few prospects. A summer in the woods, a possible fortune? Sure, why not? Sam Simpson shares the story of the ensuing quest in his article in The Native Sun, a Portland magazine published in 1900, several months after his death. He recounts that the two of them traveled to Jacksonville and met almost immediately with encouraging success. They found an old trail cutting off from the California road, lined with tree branches cleared with an axe. Indians would not have bothered, but a big party of prospectors leading half a dozen pack horses certainly would have. In fact, it was probably what led the Indians to them. If a habitually drunk lawyer poet and a grass-green dude from Chicago could spot the trail when it was 15 years old, surely a party of Shasta warriors wouldn't have had a whole lot of trouble following it when it was fresh. Be that as it might, Simpson and Harper now followed the path to its end, where they found to their surprise and delight the mineral spring and landmark rock mentioned in Harper's cousin James's letters. They rested their horses there for two days, then set out again. But this time, success was not so easily to be had. For weeks, the two of them rode through the wild and rugged foothills, seeking that secret valley they'd read about in the letters of Cousin James, but never finding it. 
Simpson started experiencing a sort of disorientation as his dreams became indistinguishable from his daytime activities, riding endlessly through a trackless wilderness looking for a ruined cabin and its buried treasure trove. Then one night, after they had made camp and Harper had fallen asleep exhausted, Simpson writes that he was visited by the ghost of a miner, tall, muscular, bearded, in a gray flannel shirt with a ghostly Colt Model 1851 strapped to his ghostly side. The miner gazed sorrowfully into his eyes without saying anything. And then Simpson woke up. It had all been a dream. Or had it? Cue the suspenseful music. Dun-dun-dun! Because now, when Simpson cast his eyes for the hundredth time on the broken-off final letter penned by his partner's cousin, there was new writing on it. Someone had taken a ghostly pencil and drawn what looked like two mountain ridges meeting at right angles and a miner's pick just below. Who had done this, and what could it mean? Simpson wrote. Was it the idle and unmeaning tracery of my own unconscious hand, or was it the effort of some superior power to direct us in our search for the lost cabin? In doubt of his own reason, Simpson said nothing to Harper. But two days later, when the two of them climbed a peak to survey the surrounding country, he saw the two mountain ridges that the ghost had sketched, and just below where the miner's pick had appeared. Now very excited, Simpson told Harper all about his dream and the ghostly vandalism that had been mysteriously perpetrated upon his cousin's last letter, and the two of them enthusiastically descended from the peak and made a beeline for the spot. On, on we went, in a dream of wonder and future wealth, and nothing impeded our progress now until we entered a narrow valley, walled in by precipitous mountains and bordered on each side by a beautiful stream, the poet writes. We knew we were upon sacred ground, and along the shadowy fringe of the forest, where the fretted waters sang a barbaric tune, we rode, silent as specters. A resistless magnetism drew us on, and not a word was spoken. A poet indeed. Near the top of the little valley, the two searchers found the blackened ruins of their personal El Dorado. We turned a projecting angle of the wood, and a square black object, half buried in a tangle of weeds, was before us. We had found the lost cabin, nothing now but an empty pen of scorched and blackened logs, with, he adds, a skeleton inside. Apparently after killing Henry Wilson and scaring off James, the Indians had dragged Henry's corpse back to the cabin and set it on fire. But the logs, cut just a couple months before, were too green to burn. The two Argonauts stepped past the slumping skeleton and grinning skull into the enclosure and started probing the floor in search of their golden fleece. The floor was hard-packed, and Simpson drove his pick into it again and again. Finally, the point connected with solid rock. It was the vault. At that moment, a shot rang out behind him, and a terrible cry. Ted Harper had accidentally shot himself. He now lay there on the floor next to the bones of Henry Wilson, fresher than his cousin, but every bit as dead. It was all too much for the sensitive, poetic soul of Sam Simpson, who promptly fainted. Then it was night, a long, starless and dreamless night of clouded intellect and slumbering soul, when the cunning forces of nature had repaired the fragile structure and the dawn of reason came, they were telling the story of a stage driver on the Oregon and California route. 
who many months before had captured a nude and sun-bronzed wild man, gibbering like a monkey but harmless as a babe, near the boundary line, and sent him north to Portland. And now we come to the last act in our play. What are we to make of this crazy yarn of ghosts and lost gold? Certainly anyone who would take it at face value is likely to already have put money down on some beachfront property in Arizona. But in the true spirit of lost gold stories, author Ruby L. Holt has found quite a bit of circumstantial evidence to suggest that this expedition did happen, or at least that Simpson and Harper left together on some sort of prospecting trip in 1868, or at least that Simpson did, maybe. If, that is, we stipulate the existence of both the cabin and James's letters, there's no source for either one other than Simpson's article. As Holt confirms, the dates line up. Simpson closed his law office in Portland in April 1868, and other than the fact that he wrote his most famous poem, Beautiful Willamette, shortly thereafter, he's not on record as doing anything else that summer. But as Holt notes, there are a couple of other factors that have to be considered. First, there's the fact that Simpson was a poet and a storyteller. And remember, he didn't write this story until much later. After his failed attempt to get started as a lawyer, he went into journalism, writing for newspapers in Corvallis, Eugene, Salem, Portland, and Astoria. By the time he put pen to paper to tell this lost cabin story, presumably in or just before 1899, since it was published after his death, his poems and stories of colorful Oregon characters were widely published and admired and he was just as likely to add spicy little fictional details to his stories, you know, to make them more colorful, as Stuart Holbrook ever was. How much of the Lost Cabin story is spicy little fictional details, one wonders? All of it? Second, there's the fact that he was an alcoholic. This, as Holt notes, suggests an explanation for why he claims Harper just randomly showed up in his law office to entrust him, a complete stranger, with a very valuable secret. But if the two of them had done some carousing together, it becomes very likely that a story like that would have been shared over a pint or two of rye. And if the two were party buddies, other things become possible as well. Simpson's description of dissociation while the two of them were riding through the wilderness, for example, in which he was never quite sure if he was awake or dreaming, or the visit from the ghostly miner. Those who believe in ghosts will have no trouble here, Holt writes dryly, but I for one wonder how much liquor Hopper and Simpson had with them. Plenty, of course. No alcoholic ever leaves home without a generous supply or plans for replenishing it as needed. Chances are pretty good that the two of them spent that whole summer in a drunken stupor just trying not to fall off their horses. They may have found the cabin, or maybe they didn't. At some point, either Harper shot himself by accident, or Simpson shot him, or maybe he fell and hit his head. Who really knows what happened? The only witness was a gibbering madman found frolicking mindlessly around the stagecoach road the following week. In fact, it's even possible that Harper didn't die at all, that he double-crossed Simpson, grabbed all the gold for himself, and disappeared. Maybe what Simpson remembered as a gunshot was the sound of Harper's rifle butt crashing into the base of his skull. Maybe Harper took advantage of Simpson's preoccupation with probing the cabin floor to clobber him, not quite succeeding in killing him but badly rattling his marbles, and then dug up the gold himself and used Simpson's horse to pack out the gold. So once again, in answer to the question of whether this lost treasure trove is still out there, or if it ever even existed in the first place, we have the usual answer. Almost certainly not. But, 
If your backwoods travels ever bring you to a pretty little secret valley in the Siskiyous with grassy fields and a forest and a little laughing brook running through it, hemmed in all round by forbidding mountain cliffs, you might consider spending a few days poking around in the bottomlands, just in case. Key sources in this story included works by Ruby L. Halt, Sam L. Simpson, and Ulrich H. Hart. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes are uploaded every weekday morning at around 6 a.m., so it'll be a couple of days before you get your next fix. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the subsequent weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.